Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy, and I'm with Guy's Woodshop, obviously, and I'm joined by Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker. Obviously, hello. <laughs> and uh, Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Say hello, Sean. Not so obvious. Hello. <laughs> All right, cool. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you guys some of our perspective, you guys and gals some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And uh, we also have a Patreon account. Right now we only have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I'd also say I'd like to say hello to a new Patreon patron we have this time, uh, Jeff Richards, and we sincerely hope that you'll give us our support. So let's get into it. Hui? You're up first. All right. This question is from Matthew, and he asks, I have a 1970s Rockwell floor stand drill press. I restored with no appreciable runout, as well as a Powermatic 180, which is an 18-inch planer with helical head upgrade. They are older, but seem sturdier than today's machines. Just wondering what machines you might consider looking for older versions that may be better than today's equivalent, as I don't see many of the type in your shops. Uh, so when I was looking for machines early on before I had the machines that I have now, I actually did look at a lot of older machines. I looked at a lot of uh, machines that, in fact, actually I restored a couple. I restored an older jet bandsaw and jet planer. It was a six-inch planer. When I wanted to upgrade, I stopped looking at some of the older machines, and primarily because the time that it took and research that it took to invest in uh, restoring the machines actually was quite significant. So one thing that I actually looked at when I was actually uh, uh, considering getting a drill press was was an Atlas drill press. I wanted to try to get one of these like antique, restored, beautiful drill press. And what I quickly found out was one, uh, getting them is very expensive. A lot of people know what, what it is that they have, so they want top dollar for it. And then on top of that, restoring it uh, requires that either you're machining your own parts or finding parts either on eBay or whatnot. And it was just a hassle that I had gone through with both the jet bandsaw and the jet jointer that I really didn't want to go through again. The same thing uh, when I was looking for a bigger jointer, uh, I was looking at the Delta DJ30. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's a big like 12 inch jointer. And again, it was another instance where, you know, I was reading on forums and, and, and getting information about that jointer. And it's basically that you can't get parts for it anymore. And so those are really kind of the situations that I encountered. And I did actually restore a couple machines and it just, it just got to be more work and more hassle than, um, than I wanted to put through. But to address another question he, he, or another statement that he made that a lot of these machines, older machines seem sturdier than today's equivalent. You know, I don't necessarily know if I agree with, I would say all or maybe some, but I don't think that my machines are, you know, a lot worse or, or not nearly as, as good or as sturdy as, you know, some of the older ones. I'm sure that if you had like a 12 inch joiner that was made by Yates, that it would probably weigh a couple of tons and, uh, and probably not move anywhere. But for me, I think actually having some of these bigger machines, having them mobile actually is better for me in a lot of situations. I, I don't know. What are, you, what are your guys' thoughts? Have you guys ever, ever done any restorations or had older machines? I know, I think, Guy, you've had some older machines, right? Mainly because I'm older. <laughs> but they were um, maybe newer at the time, right? 
but they were new at the time. I myself, I've never been one to buy inexpensive used machines. Mm-hmm. I have really no desire to renovate machinery, and I like to buy new tools. Plainly put, it's kind of like I, I I'll draw an analogy to like a car. Right. I I, I lease my vehicles. Mm-hmm. I have for probably well over 25 years now. I'm lucky if I last two years with a car. I don't want to work on cars. I have, mm-hmm. I don't even, I, I don't want anything to do with it. Right. I just want to stick a key in it and go. I look at the tools as the same thing. I don't want to mess with all this stuff. I don't want to have to hunt down parts. I don't want to have to hunt down paint. I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I just want to get it, take it out of the crate, set it up and use it. Yep. Yeah. That being said, there are some machines that are, I don't want to say better, but you can buy used for a song compared to what they are new. You know, you brought up mm-hmm. like a Yates, like a Yates American. Yeah. You can buy these big 24 inch joiners that are, you know, like you said, two or three tons and they may be six or $7,000. They're not cheap, but if you've got a production shop, it makes sense. And you need something and stuff like that. I mean, I see, like, I'm a production shop now. We have a lot of grizzly equipment and there's nothing wrong with the grizzly stuff. It's nice. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. But it gets abused. Yep. Yep. I mean, guys taking eight foot long, eight quarter boards that, you know, weigh a hundred pounds and just banging them on the machines. Yeah. It throws them out of alignment, especially yep. the extension beds on the planer. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you get some of these big old pieces of iron that, you know, were built in the 40s or the 50s, you know, these things weigh like thousands and thousands of pounds or 36-inch wide planers, and they, they're they as big as a Volkswagen. Yeah. Stuff like that is very desirable. I just saw one on Instagram where my buddy Darcy uh, Warner, he rebuilt one. It was, it was 25K. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was expensive. Is he a production shop? No, he just rebuilds. He rebuilds old old equipment. Oh, uh, it's Warner, just something he does. Okay. Yeah, Warner Machinery mm-hmm. on Instagram. He's out of. Uh, I'm, I'm giving him a free plug here. He's out, <laughs> of Fort, he's out of Fort Wayne, and he goes all over the country and buys all those old machines mm-hmm. and fixes them up new. Yeah, yeah. He's got a big, huge, hundred thousand square foot warehouse up there man it's just all it's just full of stuff everybody know in the midwest knows that buys used equipment knows darcy yeah he's been around for a long time to, anyways as sean yeah no feelings? well <laughs> i'm awake uh but uh no my hobby is woodworking not rebuilding old machines i don't i don't have the uh patience for that stuff and I get enough of the of that when I align the jet joiner combo. Yeah, it's not for me. Um, yeah, you could probably get a, a decent deal on nice old uh, old iron, but it's not for me. Um, I'd rather mm-hmm. build furniture instead of dilly uh, dilly dally around with that stuff. It's a good point. Yeah, when I rebuilt the six inch jet joiner, that was it was a pain, especially dealing with the the worn out dovetail ways. It wasn't fun. I don't wish that upon anybody. But I mean, I got it working and I actually sold it for more than I 
bought it for, which helped in in the investment of a larger joiner later on. But again, it was it was not fun and it was difficult to do and it took a long time. And I want to do woodworking. I don't want to do machine restoration. So so really, that's one of the reasons. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't get machines out there used that are already in great working condition. And in fact, actually, there are a lot of those out there. But uh, my, my biggest concern was the ability to get parts. And a lot of the ones that I, a lot of the machines, the older machines that I was looking at, actually didn't have uh, parts available or or you had to find a third party dealer. And I mean, to me, it was kind of a crapshoot of whether or not the part that you got from a third party dealer was actually going to fit properly or work properly. So I will say that if you could, if I could purchase a fully restored piece, uh, a tool, a joiner, a planer, something like that, I would love to. But if you're buying a fully restored piece, you're probably going to pay more than I would pay for the jet joiner combo and all that stuff. You're going to pay more money for the Mm. equivalent, I think, uh, than buying new. You're going to get a nice, really nice machine but that's mm-hmm. where I, the the cheap Sean comes into play, and, and I'm just going to buy a new machine. <laughs> yeah, all I was going to say is, you know, it, it it really depends on what gives you enjoyment. Yeah, and it sounds like our us three guys that doesn't give us much enjoyment, but for mm-hmm. some people it might. And yeah, if it if you like tinkering around with that stuff, have at it, man. And you can find good equipment very inexpensively that just needs some TLC. And it'll be a fine piece of equipment. Is it better than what's available new? Eh, depends. Uh, it depends. Eh, I really don't know if that's depends. You know, true or not. It depends. It depends. Comparing it to the Jet 10-inch combo machine versus an old 10-inch combo, I'd say you're probably going to get something better on the old school one yeah. <laughs> compared to something like it. It just depends. But at least you'll know what you have if you get an old piece and restore it. Yeah. 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 All right. So, Sean... I think you've got the next question. Yep. And this is from a first time caller. I don't think we've heard anything from him. His name is Eric from Poplar Shop. Oh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Eric from Poplar Shop? Yeah. I've never heard of him. I'm not either. Question What is the piece that you built and wish to forget about? And Ooh. yeah, luckily I only have one piece, and it's an odd sized table that I made for my parents probably about six years ago when I was still somewhat green at woodworking. Uh, It was a large table. It was larger than a side table, but smaller than a kitchen table should be. So the proportions were were way off and the design of the legs were terrible. Uh, They kind of looked like hockey sticks with the curved portion at the top where they connect to the apron. So this meant that the grain direction went vertical Mm -hmm. to horizontal, which is normal, but the legs had about a four inch section that was horizontal before it connected to the aprons and it it just looked, it looked terrible. The legs were too skinny. The aprons had a slight curve over the length and the curve was shallow enough that just made the aprons look bad. The the, the curve Mm. wasn't deep enough. It was just Mm -hmm. odd looking. I mean, it it was a table, not too much to hate on it. Uh, There are some, (laughs) some good things, you know, it's made out of solid cherry with eight quarter for the legs. So of course it's uh, got really attractive grain, I used a table edge profile bit on the top, which came out nice. And that's mm. actually the name of the bit, table edge profile. Um, it's sold mm-hmm. by Whiteside. It's their model number 3296. Uh, I did finish it with a nice satin wipe on armor seal varnish. So it's got a nice dark glow to it. 
Uh, and the most important thing, it was a learning experience, which uh, I learned a lot about proportions, grain direction, applying varnish uh, for a nice finish. And I think this project made me finally start using SketchUp. And I probably could have avoided some of this um, if I'd have been using SketchUp beforehand. But of course, my parents use it. They love it. And they won't let me touch it because if I had... If I had it in my, uh, my shop, I'd probably tear it down and use the parts for other projects. Could probably make two tables out of it. It's such an odd size. But mm-hmm. that's the only piece that I can think of is that ugly ducking, duckling of a table. What about you guys? Hui, do you have a piece that you wish that you could forget about? Yeah. So I made this changing table. I mean, it's not necessarily a table, but it's basically something that holds the changing pad for my child. And the reason why I wish to have to forget about it was because I did not account for the fact that my child was going to get bigger and possibly bonk her head on the edge of it. You, you didn't think you didn't think your <laughs> child would grow. No, I thought my it child would, always, would grow. It would always remain an infant. <laughs> I didn't realize that she would get uh, sort of uh, a little bit tantrum ridden when we were trying to change her and throw her head back and hit her head into the edge of the uh, basically changing table. Yes, we don't even use it anymore. It's out in the garage and man, I don't even know. It's it's not even, I'm sorry, it's in the storage room and I don't even know what the heck I'm going to do with it. I mean, it's this firewood. Yeah, firewood. The other thing is that I, I used honey locust for and I don't even know if you guys have ever used honey locust, but it is hard and dense as all get out it's i've I've seen it at a at a a local sawyer that i buy some wood from now and then and he's got a bunch of it in his warehouse so if you call it a warehouse but uh he's got a big pile of it i I was looking at it once i'm like yeah i think so so hard and dense and difficult and it tears out like crazy it ended up looking fine the problem is is that i just didn't think in my mind that my daughter would get bigger and bonk her head on the corner and she really bonked her head pretty bad that day and uh, it was a pretty frustrating day the issue is that i just didn't like really understand what it was going to be used for i wanted to do something decorative and my my desire to make something pretty and decorative outweighed the fact that it had to function properly and that's, you know, that was my biggest mistake. So yeah. you forgot the whole babies, A, get bigger <laughs> and B, they get fussy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought my, so, my baby, of course, was just going to be this perfect oh, yeah. baby every uh, single time on the Jane Community, uh, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> How about you, Guy? Do you have anything that you wish you to, uh, to well, have forgotten about? Peace that you built that you wish to forget about. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember because I've forgotten about all of them. <laughs> um, I've I've built so many pieces that I have forgotten about because they were awful. Oh gosh. Um, I don't know if I can pick just one. I would have to say I, I built a set of chairs once, these four chairs. <sighs> when I got done with them, A, they were uncomfortable as all get out. So that didn't help. <laughs> and they racked really easy Mm -hmm. i didn't build them sturdy enough Mm. so yeah there you go that's it but i don't know what else to say other than that you know i've I've, that was 
30 years ago, maybe Mm -hmm. somewhere around there, give or take Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, they were, they were junk. I I actually just tore them apart and scrapped them. Firewood. They were, they were were so awful. Yeah. they They were horrible. Um, that's probably the worst thing I've ever built. I've built a lot of stuff. I've just sat back and looked at it and go, yeah, what did I I just spend my time doing? Um, you know, there's pieces I've built that I say it, I said I would never build. I just, I just finished. I posted a picture on Instagram today of a, I can't call it a river table. So it's not a river hashtag, not a river table. Um, (laughs) but I, I called it a reverse live edge conference table with inset glass. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. And I'd say I'd never build one of those things. And I still think it's ugly as you know what. It's just, (laughs) but the customer just was, I guess, was just going nuts. And if you look at the picture on Instagram, it's actually a pretty cool picture because it's up way and i don't want to say where it is but it's in one of the the towers downtown and mm-hmm. it's in a conference room with this big picture window big panoramic view of the skyline of the city that's the backdrop for this table and it looks pretty nice in that environment it's a mm-hmm. cool room but still you know i'm i'm making this thing and i'm going oh god this just looks awful and people are walking by oh that's so awesome <laughs> oh, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> I wish I could. I got. I, I guess I probably shouldn't have posted it on Instagram. Why? I'll, I'll have to uh, delete it now. No, it's fine. I mean, it it has to do with woodworking. I guess. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. Yeah. Do you what you want? I mean, it, it, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm not one that particularly likes that kind of furniture, but still, I mean. Uh, I think you should be proud of it. I mean, it 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 looks good for what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you did a fine job building it. Yeah, thank you. So I'm gonna go. I, I think we've talked enough about that. Is, is it my turn? Yeah, it's your turn for this okay. question. Yep. Yes. Okay. So my first question is from Hunter, and Hunter says, "Hey guys and guy, back with another question for you." No, well, I'm glad we can answer another question for you. I foolishly agreed to make the new dining table for my new fire department or the new dining table for my fire department. We firefighters are basically 240 pound toddlers. So this thing needs to be essentially bomb proof. My main concern for this piece is finishing. I have listened to a lot of podcasts and done some reading, but most of the discussion on finishing is in regards to the nicest finish not how to gorilla proof a finish, or in your case, a toddler proof finish, (laughs) large toddler proof finish. I've had people suggest epoxy, but I really don't want to do an epoxy pour, especially with the stigma surrounding epoxy right now. Uh, I don't know what stigma he's referring to. My go-to finish is the Minwax oil-based poly. And I'm wondering, should I just go that route and add extra layers? I've been considering using a poly for hardwood floors. What do y'all think? I'm probably going to build with eight quarter hickory. Thanks in advance, Hunter. So a couple things that he's talking about right now. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, is using a Minwax oil-based poly. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And he's saying, uh, you know, go that route and add extra layers. And if you do that, 
A, it's going to take a long time to do. Yeah. Because it's oil-based, so you have to wait, you know, 24 hours between coats. And by the time you put like three or four or five coats on it, it's going to be tough, but it's still always going to be one layer thick. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to have it's going to look like a, a really thick film finish, yeah. but it's still always going to be a little soft, no matter what. And I, mm-hmm. I don't want to say soft as in, you know, you can dent it with your finger, but it's soft in comparison to, let's say, you know, a lacquer finish mm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And instead of if you want to do a poly, I would go water based, mm. put shellac on it and put a water-based poly on it. You can build that up into a film finish, mm-hmm. and it's pretty tough, but it, it's going to take you less time. Yeah. Another thing you can do is take a – if you want to get something really tough, get the general finishes, um, water-based fallout, poly, I forget what they call it. Enduro? Endurovar. Well, that's the um, high performance. High performance, yeah. That's it, yeah. Endurovar is the oil infused, whatever that means. The the high performance, and they make a cross linker for that. And what the cross linker does is it it's a it's a extra catalyst you add to the water based poly, mm-hmm. and it makes it harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really hard. I've used it, and that's uh, General Finishes makes that cross linker. Another thing you can do is use a conversion varnish and spray it. Mm -hmm. If it were me and I was doing something like this, I would do the conversion varnish. Hmm. What what do you think, Hui? So, so yeah, I agree with you on the conversion varnish. Just one thing that you do have to consider is that it's very stinky. Very, very stinky. Water-based conversion varnish. Oh, water. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So like a C, I think CIC makes a water-based conversion varnish. CIC makes ones and it's, yep. and it's awesome, which is Centurion Industrial Coatings. Right. And I believe they have, don't they have a cross linker for it as well? I'll have to talk yep. to Eric. So yep. yeah. Uh, not, I, I don't know about the, well, they may have one for the conversion varnish. They may. I don't know. Whether it's the conversion, but I'm pretty sure CIC does have a product that has a crosslinker that gives it an extra oomph of durability. Yeah, Target um, Coatings makes one also. Right, right. I completely agree with you. It, I would go that route. Yep. Sean? Okay, I'm going to attack this from the aspect that he may not spray. So mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. about, and this is just me spitballing, you guys can kick it back to me and let me know what you think. Um, epiphanes and or some sort of bar top finish for this that you can brush on. I've never used epiphanes, 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 whatever it's called. I've never used it. That's an outdoor stuff, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never used it either. And I wonder if it has the same durability. So it's, it's a waterproof finish. I don't know about its durability. So I think waterproofing and durability are, are kind of separate things in that realm. I imagine it's extremely durable because, I mean, it's used on boats. But again, I don't know enough about it. Yeah. yeah I've never used it. But I guess that is a route. Yeah. And the bar top finishes, I mean, if you're looking for something that's extremely durable, I mean, that's definitely an option. Are those the bar- are almost those are like those are like an epoxy though? Too. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Are they similar to an epoxy? It's really thick film finish. Yeah, it, it is. Um, again, this is it's really kind of hard to determine. You know his parameters if yeah. 
he didn't. Yeah, it, it sounds like he doesn't want to do epoxy because epoxy is not a, a a popular route these days. But yeah, yeah. Well, which I don't know. Just do the water based poly mm. with the cross linker, and that's yeah. that's hard. That's yeah, really very. I didn't know General Finishes had a top a cross linker for uh, their yep. high performance. That's good yep. to know. That's good to know. I put it on my countertops. I use this stuff where you uh, you, you you lay down. The countertops that are no longer in my kitchen, but it's like you lay down this this glue coating and you spread little sprinkles all over it, mm-hmm. and then yep. you coat it with stuff. Mm-hmm. And for the coating, I use a water based the general finishes water based poly and the cross linker, mm-hmm. and it held up for ten years mm-hmm. in my kitchen. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. I mean, that would definitely yeah. go that route. Yeah. Now, do you have to? This is a dumb question. Do you have to spray that then? No, just brush it. Well, then there you go. I would 100% go that route. Yeah. Yeah. Actually yeah. use a- As an uh, option. They, they recommend using a sponge brush. Yeah. For water-based yep. polys. Okay. I wasn't sure with adding that cross-link, if that meant you had to spray it or not. But yeah, I knew you could do that with just the water-based. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Very but cool. you can do it. If you have access to spray equipment, you can do it with you know the, the conversion varnish too. So I would, yeah, I would find a sprayer and go conversion varnish or give that a try with the cross-linker. That's a good yeah. idea. You yeah. get the gold star on that one, guy. <laughs> oh, sweet. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> so I guess that wraps up our first round of questions. And before we get to our second round, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Maverick Abrasives. Maverick Abrasives is a family-owned, family-run manufacturer of all things abrasives, such as sanding belts and sanding discs. Their manufacturing facility is located in lovely Anaheim, California, where knowledgeable abrasive and sanding experts are on call Monday through Friday to answer any sanding or finishing questions you may have. Check out their wide assortment of sanding discs on their website, and whether you use a five-hole, eight-hole, or a festool hole pattern, they have you covered with the best prices on the web. And to top it off, they have free shipping on orders of $200 or more. So check out Maverick Abrasives for your sanding and finishing needs. Awesome. Hui, you've got the next question. All right. This question is from Darren. Thanks for the great podcast. I have a large variety of clamps uh, that are on a simple wall rack now. I need the wall space in my growing even smaller two-car garage shop. Considering a clamp cart or possibly under benches, Please discuss options and how you each deal with them being out of the way, but handy when needed. So actually right now, I the reason why I took this question is because I think maybe it's something we can sort of brainstorm. I actually have all of my clamps on a wall uh, similar to what Darren has, and I'm considering changing it up, not because I need the wall space, but because I kind of like the idea of having it conveniently closer to when I'm doing glue ups. The only problem is, is that similar to uh, to the fact that Darren's uh, shop is, you know, getting smaller and smaller with the more tools and things that he has. I don't want to give up that floor space. I'm wondering what what you guys have. I think everybody I think all of us have clamp racks on the walls, right? Am I right on that? Yeah. So, I mean, is, is there an alternative? Have you guys considered doing something different? Because I'm, I'm actually considering doing something different. I just don't know what other alternatives there are other than what I'm doing right now or a clamp cart. And, and my, my concern, again, is just taking up that floor space. 
one thing that I thought about and that I actually do is I have F clamps hanging on a rail that's on my miter saw station. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm able to get all of those. I actually put a two by four between one uh, between two of the legs, and I was able to hang all of my smaller F clamps uh, off of that one rail. And mm-hmm. I also considered doing something with a um, a French cleat or some other uh, other way of being able to mount the uh, my parallel clamps on the sides of my assembly table, uh, so mm-hmm. that way you could reach over, grab one, and, and use it. That wouldn't work mm-hmm. for the longer ones, um, but you could, the way mine's set up is the back side of the assembly table that is butts right up to the table saw. If you had some sort of shelf in there, you could utilize that space and put some of the clamps in there um, mm-hmm. if you needed to get them off the wall. But ultimately what I did was just went with the clamp rackets from Woodpeckers and it took up less than half the space. Um, and I think I could eventually find all a place for all of my F clamps. So the only thing that's on the wall are the parallel clamps using the clamp brackets, but I would utilize the space on this uh, in and around the assembly table. And sometimes you could, um, in some instances, you could even raise the top of your assembly table a little bit, put some space between that and the top of the cabinet, use that space for potentially for clamps, but just somewhere around the assembly table would be a pretty good idea. I think for placing your clamps. Now those parallel, I I have, I've got some pretty long parallel clamps and they just would not I mean, I, I, there's no way I would be able to store them on the side of my assembly table. Now, the smaller F-style clamps, definitely, but the parallel clamps are just, they're just too long, too big. Yeah, it depends on your situation and how your table's set up to your, mm-hmm. uh, next to your table saw, I guess. Now, Guy, you have all your clamps kind of, I don't want to say centrally located, but they're all in one area, one place, correct? They're all, they're, they're, they're located in one small area of my shop. I've got, and I got a bunch of clamps. The amount of wall space I have, it's about a three foot by, well, it goes all the way up to the ceiling, so it's it's nine feet. So a three, the nine foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. It's all, like I said, three feet wide, but it goes all the way up to the ceiling. And I use, I made my own uh, holders for the mm-hmm. clamps. That mm-hmm. They're the ones that Jay Bates designed. They're yeah. very, very similar to what Sean's talking about with the uh, woodpeckers mm-hmm. clamps. Instead of storing the clamps next to each other, mm-hmm. you build them out from the wall. Yep, yep. They go out from the wall instead of being next to each other on the wall. So it takes ultimately less space. I've And I've got, I said, I've got a ton of clamps. I'm not a huge fan of parallel clamps. I've got some but I've got a ton of bar or pipe clamps. Right. And I've got, uh, most of my clamps are the medium to light duty F style clamps, which mm-hmm. I use, I use those more than anything. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're all within two or three feet of my assembly table. Yeah. And my, and my MFT tabletop where mm-hmm. I use a lot of that stuff. Proximity where you're assembling is key. Mm-hmm. And have them so you can get at them pretty easy is also key, and that's why, like I said, with, with the way I have mine set up, it works really well for me. Anyways, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would never consider a floor space a clamp cart because I just don't have the floor. I can't dedicate the floor space to it. Yeah, same here. That's that's the difficult part, and probably one of the reasons as to why I hadn't even gone down that avenue. But I do need to rearrange my my clamp rack so that they're a little bit more accessible or a little closer. Well, honestly, it's right now I don't have enough of those. Uh, and I, I, and I use the same thing that you do guy, the, the J Bates sort of style where 
it's the uh, clamps are stacked out away from the wall as opposed to yeah. along the wall. Uh, and that saves a lot of space. But right now, I just don't actually have enough holders. And so I'm kind of been finding places or ways to uh, to actually store the clamps. But no, I, in no way would I probably consider using a clamp cart either. Just again, it's floor space. I don't want to take up that floor space. So yeah. Yeah. anyway, uh, Sean, I think you've got the next question. All right. This is from Jonathan Scott Woodcrafts. My one car detached garage is 109 years old and is running off of one single 20 amp, 120 volt circuit. I have just two outlets in the garage right now, and I want to have a sub panel installed with more amperage and ideally a 220 volt circuit as well. So that's what I'm wondering about. I was thinking about a 100 amp with three 20 amp, 110 volt circuits and one 40 amp, 220 volt circuits. I'm not an electrician, so I don't know if that's possible. But if so, does that power setup sound good? I'm trying to future proof it a bit. Thinking about potentially expanding the garage one day, having a 220 volt dust collector and maybe a hammer combo machine like we once I get that rocket engineer kind of money. But I was also <laughs> thinking of externally mounting the box panel so that I could run external conduit to have the flexibility for future outlet layout changes. Mm. So, yeah, I just want to get an opinion on power availability throughout the shop and what your thoughts are. Thanks. Well, when I built my house, I got lucky in that they put two 100 amp sub panels and after everything was installed and set up, um, only about 50% of that was utilized. So that left me with room to add additional outlets in the shop. And I went with, uh, and this is what I went with. Now the garage did come with two outlets, one on each side of the garage, but they both shared the same 15 amp circuit. So if mm -hmm. I plugged in a miter saw on the shop back and ran them both at the same time, it's going to pop it. Um, mm -hmm. So I needed to get power set up. All of the outlets that I ran are along the left side of the garage. If you're facing the garage from the outside, uh, they're all on the left side with the exception of one 220 line that I ran to the front wall, which is the back wall in the center, just in case I move tools around a little bit. The right mm -hmm. side of the garage only has a single uh, 120 volt that came with the house. So I hardly ever run anything over there. Now I added three 20 amp circuits that are all dedicated on the left-hand side. Uh, and I also ran three 220 volts on the left-hand side with that one mm -hmm. in the back center. And those are all 30 amps. So I've got 20 amp 120s, 30 amp 220s. And I went with 30 amp because I didn't see myself needing uh, 40 amps, but adding 40 amps, like you mentioned, is going to give you some fr future proof uh, for your setup. And yep. you guys can probably correct me on this. Uh, Hui with that um, rocket engineering background, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're not going to need 40 amp unless you reach a, what, a five horsepower motor, four, five. Does that sound right? Three. Uh, it depends on the three. I don't think. Three is going to be forty. If you you look at you you look at look at your jet machine, it recommends a forty amp. Mm, I, I'll have to no, look yes, because yes, it does. Unless your unless your electrical box is like ten feet away from where the machine is, over to like it says the like twenty five feet, you need a forty amp, or you'll start you'll start dropping voltage. Mm. Okay, well, I run a thirty on mine. It recommends, uh, I think, like 10 gauge at 25 feet with a 40 amp. Mm. And that's for, well. The jet combo machine, which is a three horsepower motor. My Grizzly three horsepower bandsaw, that's what it required. A 40 amp. Yep. Hmm. That's what the manual said. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, I guess. Uh, 40 amp, but it, it, 
it, it's saying 40 amp. Okay. Hmm. Well, um, and looking, yeah. Well, anyways, um, anyways, if you want to go 40, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I've got 30, not had an issue with any of my machines, um, with my saw stop or my jet joiner, but 40 is going to future proof proof you for whatever machine you want. I can't imagine going larger than 40, what you would need, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm no electrician. So, yeah. um, that's my setup and what I run. What about you guys? Hui, what are you running with? I am actually not running a sub panel. I'm not nearly as lucky as you are, Sean. And my home is an older home. It was built in the 1960s. Uh, thankfully, uh, when they added on the garage, it was actually an add on to the house. So a lot of the electrical for 120 volt uh, was already properly plumbed out to the, uh, the garage. So I had plenty of uh, 120 volt. I think there are like uh, three 20 amp circuits out there. Pretty sure three 20 amp circuits, but there were no 220 amp circuits. So actually, what I used was um, a 220 tandem breaker. So mm-hmm. actually splits two uh, normal breaker uh, spaces into three circuits. The center two are 220, and the outside are one 120. Uh, now, I had to do that twice because my ductless mini split had to re- required its own own line. And then I use one, actually only one 220 amp 30, or excuse me, 220 volt 30 amp uh, circuit for uh, for my machines. Uh, I'm running a dust collector and, you know, one other big machine on that one circuit. And I've actually uh, measured the amperage draw for both machines you know i'm running two machines at a time dust collector and another machine and uh and i'm well below the 75 or 80 percent of the actual amperage load i wish i had more 220 amp uh circuits out there but i don't uh definitely in the future when you know this isn't going to be our forever home but ultimately the best way to do it would have been to uh, have a sub panel out there and uh and a couple more 220 amp circuits but but unfortunately i don't and it is not future proof so uh, in the future it would be a sub panel with many more circuits so probably two more circuits would be 220 amp circuits would be enough how about you guy you've got you got something a little bit different going on right well i mean the the i've got one electrical panel in the house mm-hmm. we have 200 amp service mm-hmm. for the house and my box is completely loaded it's full yeah. There's not a single spot left, and I have double breakers in there. The garage itself, all the outlets, the lights, the lights are on one circuit. Mm-hmm. All the outlets are on one circuit, mm-hmm. and then I've got two two twenty volt circuits. Both are forty amp. Nice. One runs my dust collector. Mm-hmm. And the other one runs all the power tools. Right. So you're running one tool at a time, correct? I'm running one tool at a time. I've yeah. turned on two tools at a time and haven't had an issue. Yeah. With yeah. it, Jonathan, in your situation, if our if I were in your situation and I wanted to future proof the garage, your shop, mm-hmm. I would call a call an electrician. Yeah. Have them come out and have them work the electrical company. And have them establish a, a brand new 200 amp service to your garage and have them put a big ass 200 amp box in there. Yep. You will never want for, for anything in that shop. That's, that's, that's it. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's the it's, answer. He's, he's, yeah, he's talking about, you know, a detached garage and he wants to have a sub panel installed. So with more amperage, just bite the bullet. And it's really not that, it's not like $50,000 to have this done. It might cost you a couple grand. I yep. know that's not really expensive. When you consider overall the benefit to that, yeah. being able to add circuits whenever you want and not have to worry about it affecting mm-hmm. what's going on in your house. You know, it's, it's a huge thing. Yeah. You could probably even get away with a hundred amp service. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could. Yeah. 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 So there's my, there's my, there's my recommendation. All right, guy, you've got the last question. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to find it. I wasn't prepared just like the old days. Take a shot. <laughs> this is from Jesse at Beachland Furniture. Mm-hmm. And it says, hey, guys, digging the podcast and the new format at the end. Oh, cool. He likes it. I'm new to veneering, but was curious about the subject of cross-grain glue-ups with veneer. If one wants to veneer, veneer a panel with a Baltic birch plywood core, how would you glue something over four foot with the plywood grain running the eight-foot length? My guess is you would have to put a layer of backing veneer perpendicular to the plywood grain and then lay up the finished veneer on top of that. I know using MDF would make this easier, but I'm not in love with it. For reference, this would be for a cabinet side for a nine-foot-tall built-in with an outside face. Thanks, Jesse at Beachland Furniture. Um, I've been asked this question multiple times, and Hmm. let's say you got a four-by-eight sheet of plywood. The grain is running along the eight-foot length, typically mm-hmm. on the outer cores of that plywood, whether it's birch, Baltic birch plywood, or it's you know maple or whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I have never worried about doing cross grain cross grain on those panels. I know you're supposed to, but I've never done it, and it's never been an issue. And that's using, you know, not only three quarter inch plywood, but also I I do a lot of veneer on quarter inch plywood too, mm-hmm. especially for like door panels and stuff. Right. I never worry. I never worry about if it's cross grain or not. You know, you got the back of a cabinet that may be longer than it is tall, and the grain's running from side to side mm-hmm. across across its length. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna put a an extra layer of, of veneer on there. I know that's the conventional wisdom yep. is to, to, to do it cross grain. And then you put your, your veneer running lengthwise again over the top of that. I've never done it and I've never had any issues. And I know a lot of other people that don't care about that either on that, on something like that. I'm, yeah. I'm completely there with you guy. I know at, at one point I was actually talking with, uh, Oh gosh, what is it? Uh, certainly would. And, and they had mentioned that to me. And, uh, and one of the things that, uh, that the guy there, I can't remember his name. I think it was Richard. He was saying that, uh, you're supposed to, most people don't, and most people get away with it. So when he said that I did the same thing, I, I, yeah, it's I, not I, even <laughs> getting away with it. It's just, there's I've never I've and I've done a lot of it and I've mm-hmm. never had a problem. I don't feel like I'm getting away with anything. Yeah, I yeah, just, yeah. Okay, I'm just going to do it this way. It yeah. just doesn't matter. I've done it the same way you've done it and I haven't had issues um so uh, again, conventional wisdom says so but you know, I I haven't had issues. So Sean? Yeah, I've uh 
I've done it the way you're all talking about. Never had issues. For um, shame. No. I know. And it's probably because <laughs> it's one of those things where I just didn't know any better and got lucky. I always thought that, and this is just sheer ignorance. I don't do a lot of veneering. So let me pre- preface this conversation by saying that if you're not doing anything, a bent lamination, if you're not doing using solid wood, if you're adding a thin veneer to the top of plywood, why does it matter? Hmm. Hmm. I, I think it has to do with stability. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're building your own layers of, of veneer, it makes a lot of sense because the the, the cross grain is going to give it more strength and more stability across. Because there's 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 still thin boards, even though it's a forty second of an inch thick or a sixteenth of an inch thick, it's still a board. Right. So when you cross grain it, just like conventional plywood is, you know, mm-hmm. three quarter inch plywood, seven cores, plop, you know, poplar cores. They're all, yeah. I mean, I get that, but the the cross grain yeah. sections are thicker than the yeah, than the well, thin and, veneer. Yeah. And, and I guess my point is, once that's done already, I, I don't think you really have to worry about it anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's to that at, at, at that at that point, it just becomes I'm sticking to this law because I feel I have to, and you don't have to. Yeah. Do you think? Some of the glues that we're using, um, them being as as rigid and you know creep proof as they are, might actually contribute to the stability or the not needing to do cross grain. I don't know the answer to that. That's why I'm asking. Maybe I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that either. I'm gonna you guys you guys talk amongst yourselves for a second. I'm gonna find what I consider the Bible of veneering. <laughs> All right. Well, what are we gonna what are we gonna talk about? What are we gonna talk about, Sean? <laughs> I think we're gonna talk about go back and revisit the uh, amps for that jet joiner. I'm seeing thirty online, but don't tell Guy because <laughs> he had me concerned, and I'm seeing thirty. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm back. I All couldn't right. find I couldn't find my book. It was uh, the I forget what the title is, but it's a book by Craig Thibodeau. Oh. oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's got a veneering uh, book, so go look at that on Amazon. Yeah, um, it's a fantastic book. It's uh, I think we've talked about it before. It, there's no BS in it at all. It's just straightforward this, 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 and this. It's, the craft of veneering. Well yes, that's it. Veneering. Yeah, I can't, I can't find my copy. I don't know where the hell it is. I, may, I think I may have lent it to somebody. I'll have to get it back. Jesse... It's not an issue. Don't don't worry about it. All right. I there think that's go. the bottom line. What were you guys talking about while I was gone? Anything uh, good? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I was just telling Hui that you had kind of worried me about my jet, so I, I looked it up and I'm seeing 30 amps. Okay. So. Well, maybe I I I have been mistaken before. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the day very well. Oh, this my is goodness. the this is the only time I'm I'm happy that you're wrong, just because it doesn't affect my. my I never said I was. I, I wasn't wrong. I was mistaken. Oh, <laughs> are you sure you're not a politician? I am absolutely positive. I am not a politician. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very rarely wrong, but I am mistaken from time to time. So now we're going to get to the fun part of the the show where we talk about 
very shortly <laughs> for a very short conversation about what we got going on in the shop. Hui, what do you got going on right now? I finally finished the drop leaf table for my mother-in-law just in time for Christmas. Uh, got the finish on it. All is good and it functions properly. Uh, was able to give it to her for Christmas. She loved it. Um, next thing I've got to do is put out uh, the resin shed out in my uh, the side of my house so that I can actually start putting some of the um, lawn equipment that takes up quite a bit of space in my garage shop. So is this a shed for resin or a shed Did you made pour it yourself? Of- it's a plastic shed, guys. <laughs> oh, okay. I've just heard it referred to as a resin shed. Yeah, yeah just say like- shed. Shed. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Sean? What do you got going on, man? I just finished hanging up that shaker cabinet in the shop that I built. Oh, yeah, that, that, that cherry one? Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, nice. That looks really nice. Can I have it? Yeah, sure. F- five easy payments. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, not going to drop that five easy payments thing, are you? No, we can work something out. But uh, I just got that up on the wall. Um, and now this week, I'm going to be working on some little plaques that I'm working on, um, doing some some uh, 2019 year review stats for simplecove.com. And I'm going to give the top 10 projects, I'm going to give them, a uh, the the owners of them, a little plaque because of the top 10 most viewed projects on the site for the 2019. So that's what I'm going to be seeing this week is making some plaques. So nice of you. It's nice. I don't have anything going on in my shop. The last thing I did, you know, because it was over the holidays and stuff, and not a lot going on. A lot. I watched a lot of football. Yeah. I had my wife yell at me a lot. Hey, you know, watch football all day. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Finished the. We had like a pull-out drawer for the garbage cans that mm-hmm. I had to. I had to build the drawer system and the the contain the little cans and everything mm-hmm. i got finally got that and so uh, uh, there's no open holes in my kitchen cabinets anymore uh so that got done you finished that uh, inverted uh, inversed live edged inlay yeah, that, glass was, that, table. Was, that was that was at work i mean there was a lot of stuff going on. i'm always doing stuff there i finally took my tool chest to work that's proven to be very handy Mm-hmm. having all that stuff with me but that's about it so you're staying busy at work that's why yeah so i guess that'll do it for the show and uh we'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on itunes <clears throat> it really does help us in search rankings and of course we truly appreciate all the support and feedback we get from you folks uh, remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community so if you do have woodworking questions and you'd like them answered well, kind of correctly, mostly <laughs> incorrect. You can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And you can reach me at Guy's Woodshop on Instagram and guyswoodshop.com on the web. And where can you be found at, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com and all the links to my social media are there. Sean, where can we find you? At Simple Cove on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and simplecove.com. All right. Awesome. Good show, guys. And uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. See you in a couple. See you. All right. Bye.